I am beginning a message series on the book of 2 Corinthians, which is something I've never actually preached on in terms of a whole book, and I realize that being 13 chapters long, it could be like, oh, we're on like, ver it's like singing a hymn with 13 verses. But the fact is, uh, as you go into this book, you'll find that it's an experience more than it is just reading information. And I'd like to take you into that experience, and for me, when I think of great experiences, I think of summer, and I think of challengers, and I think of convertible challengers, and I think of having people with me in that experience. And so when I was moving into the series, I was pondering how I could best wrap my mind around what it is that we're trying to accomplish here. Well, maybe it's just me. And maybe it's just, you know, you ask me a question, if I can't come up with an answer, I'll just say, Dodge Challenger. And so perhaps this may be that, but I want to take it a little bit farther and say that if you look at the backdrop of that, it's a Mediterranean scene, and Corinth is in a Mediterranean proximity, and it's the whole idea of going to a place and stopping at, in this case, four different stops along the way that... That, that, that help us to understand the book, I think, with uh, maybe a new clarity that we never had before. Or if you've never read the book of 2 Corinthians, which I'm guessing that people aren't pounding the pavement to try to discover, maybe you'll find that it is an undiscovered gem. Now, if you are, now, let's just pre-qualify you like a car salesman would do and help you to discern whether or not this is the ride for you. How many in this room have ever suffered some pretty deep pain or difficult circumstances or trauma? Anybody? Okay. That pre-qualifies you. How many of you like to say a word of encouragement or comfort to other people? Even more? Okay. How many of you feel like that sometimes... I'm glad to read the Word of God because it helps me through a difficult time. But there are other times, Pastor, when I read the Word of God, it says stuff that I need to hear but don't really want to hear right now. Anybody? Okay. So, looks like in just surveying our audience briefly with those three questions, you're all pre-qualified for this experience. So, I know the challenger isn't that big. But just imagine we could all just get in that, in that car and um, let's let Jesus drive us. How's that? Wherever it is that he's going and we're just following him. And if we can do that, then I think we can make sense of what's happening in the course of these 13 chapters we're going to explore. And I'd like today to just begin our, well, our experience with God directing the path. By looking at the first stop, and that is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, does anybody know what I'm talking about when I say the good, the bad, and the ugly? Or am I just old? <laughs> well, thank you, Kathy. There's one person who's heard the name Clint Eastwood. Thank you. So there's a Western that came out in the 60s called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, and I'm sure you've heard the whistle from it in one form or another because it's just embedded itself in our culture that much. But if you take those three words, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you apply them to your life as you try to follow Jesus, you'll discover there are a lot of good things about following Jesus. There are bad things about following Jesus because it doesn't always go well. 
And there are ugly things about following Jesus. And I'd like to tell people right out of the gate, you're going to have, you're going to experience all three. It's not that Jesus intends for the bad or the ugly to happen. It's just that when you ride along with Jesus into the places that he takes us, we do see bad and we do experience ugly. And a lot of times it's because, well, we're going through some painful moment. Maybe because we're strong in our faith. Or maybe because we're weak in our faith. Maybe we're going through an ugly experience because we're clashing with people who don't really see that the faith is important. Or we're clashing with ourselves because, well, there's a part of us that just doesn't want to let go. As Paul is writing this letter, I think it's important for you guys to understand something about him. He's a guy, just like any other person, only he's well-trained in his specialization, and that is to be able to discern the things of God and to teach them effectively. And he has done a pretty stellar job doing that. Almost to the point of maybe even being a little overconfident or cocky. If you can imagine talking about a Bible person like Paul that way, Paul in his own right, as all things being equal, was at the very worst very confident in everything that he believed about the things that Jesus did and he wanted the world to know. He wanted to impress upon as many people as possible the good news. Hey, Jesus died for our sins and he rose again for our eternal hope and life in him. And he just wanted to make sure the word got out. Simple, simple enough, isn't it? And he just got in his car and he just started going to different towns, his version of the car, and he began to spread the good news. So far, so good. But have you ever heard of this little phrase, no good deed goes unpunished. You know, one of the things about any Clint Eastwood movie you want to pick, or any Western, or any movie that has an adversary and a protagonist, where there's a good guy trying to do well for other people, there's always somebody that along the way you try to help out, and when you do, you find out that there's a, there's a, there's a weakness that you feel overcome by because you, you see a vulnerable person and you want to just step into their world and offer some assistance. Frequently in any Clint Eastwood movie, maybe in a superhero movie, you go and you offer a good gesture and then pretty soon you're pulled in. And not only that, sometimes it's a trap. Other times, well, it's just a bunch of drama that ends up costing you a lot. And the Apostle Paul was just simply trying to get the word out and in the process... He got pulled into some things that I hope you and I can relate to along the way. Maybe if you're just thinking about this a minute, have you ever tried to help somebody out and you saw the need and you're like, okay, I'm going to put the pause button on everything that's going on in my life. I'm going to step into the world and I'm going to help them out. Only to find out it's a lot more complicated than I thought. And you just sort of get pulled into it. My brother-in-law was just here this weekend, and he shared this story. He's a Christian, and he likes to help out other people. And like myself and uh, the person in the back who crashed his minibike that I said wouldn't mention their name in the sermon, which I haven't so far, he likes motorcycles. His friend liked motorcycles. His friend's motorcycle broke down, and his friend didn't have the money to fix it. My brother-in-law said, bring it over to my place, and uh, tell me what's wrong, and I'll try to fix it. 
Long story short, he was told that the clutch just needs adjusted. So he said, well, we can help you out with that. Just leave it overnight. I'll work on it tonight. Opens it up, and you ladies are like, this is inspirational, Pastor. Tell me more about clutches and motorcycles. I can't wait. Please bear with me. Okay? So he looks at it, and he says, hmm, looks like the problem's a little deeper than I thought. So he takes the clutch apart, and there's a shaft that clutch sits on, and he says, oh, man, the transmission needs help. So he ends up taking the clutch off, pulling the transmission out, taking it apart, and then he said, I didn't have the tool to fix it, so I had to go to Harbor Freight and buy the tool. And then after that, I had to buy the bearing, and I had to buy other pieces. And after about 20 hours worth of my time and $600 worth of my own money, I fixed this guy's bike. And I didn't have the heart to tell him I did all that stuff. Because I just wanted to see him have a grin on his face, and I knew he couldn't enjoy it if I told him I went through all of that. And I said, it's kind of like no good deed goes unpunished. And he said, yeah, it's kind of like that, but the upside is I wanted to do it, and I'm happy to do it. It cost me, but it was worth it. And I appreciated that because he was pulled into something that became much more dramatic than he originally assumed, and it's kind of neutral territory with a bike, but sometimes with you and I, we're pulled into things because we have a love for the people that are struggling, and we want to, we want to help them out. We want to do them a good turn, only to find out well, you're gonna, it's going to take quite a few more steps and a little bit more of your time than you thought. As we go into this message series, the Apostle Paul is looking at a church and he's saying, some years ago, I was responsible to see that church planted. And some years ago, there were some people in the church that were kind of stirring it up a little bit. And I wrote a book called First Corinthians. Well, I don't know if he called it that, but he just wrote a letter, and that's what it became. And as he wrote that, it was sort of like, I want to tell you from far away what it is that maybe can help you out in the process. And as he's telling these things, he gives a bold vision for the things of Christ. And then he talks about the, there was a troublemaker, and he says we're going to kind of sort that out. And then he talks about some other issues that the church needs to know about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and how to live that out in the day by day. And he carries on, and it's sort of like... Well, he's just kind of like, he's having fun with it, but he's also being stern. And you can tell that he's in a good place as he writes it. He's in a healthy place. And at the conclusion of it, he gives this like bold operatic expression of the resurrection of Jesus. And I can imagine that when people read this book, 1 Corinthians, for the first time, in his day, they said, that's a masterpiece. And people will read it and they'll say, he said a heck of a lot of things in there, but oh, it's so good. And for people that are church people like ourselves, we read that book and we say, I need some wisdom on a few things. Like uh, practical things. Like, like, is it my job to convert people or does God work on the seed that's been planted in the roots? If I'm thinking about suicide, even, some people say that some of the passages he talks about deal with that. And then other ground level things, like two people are having a conflict. How do we get them to get along? And Paul is just kind of laying it out there so that you have a ready guide. And he's feeling pretty good about it because as he's writing this, he's getting ready to go somewhere. 
And the place that he's getting ready to go is a place that was of his own choosing. It was a place called Ephesus. He made the plans, but then God started to direct the path. And that's where it gets interesting. Because if Paul had known the path that God was going to put him on at Ephesus, he may have had second thoughts. But because he had, well, he had a strong faith, I think he would have went into it. And here's how it played out for him. And then I'm going to find out how this can play out for you. For starters, imagine you just became aware of the good news. You had an encounter with Jesus firsthand on the road to Damascus. And you got this bright vision for a future that clearly is going to be different. Because what Jesus did, well, rose from the dead, cured us of the curse of sin, defeated all the unseen principalities and powers, and on and on, Paul's imagination is just, all of the synapses are firing. He's excited. He's stoked. This is new. It's different. And he discovers day by day, it's so good. So he starts telling people, and he says, I'm going to go to Ephesus, and I'm going to tell those guys about Jesus, because they need it more than anybody. What was Paul looking at? Now, we can't really relate to his experience too much, but let me just say this. Imagine you live in a community that was superstitious enough to believe that if you took a, a, a portion of your income on a weekly basis and you went to the temple of Artemis and you offered the priest an offering through those resources in hopes that you would appease the gods and they would curry, you could curry their favor and as a result you would be successful in life. And to just hedge your bets, you'd go down to a shop that would provide from a metalsmith an idol that would basically be a depiction of this God that can help you with that need. And perhaps you were poor and you couldn't afford the metal version, so you went to another shop and you got a carving of this God that could help you in your understanding of life with your need. Whether it's to be successful or to find a mate or to have children or have farms that are giving a bountiful crop. It was the belief of so many people in Ephesus that all you needed to do was go to the temple of Artemis, pay your dues, and lock it down. And there must have been something to it because people kept doing it. I'm guessing there really was some evil that was at work in the background saying, I'll give you just enough to keep you going. <coughs> and people just, the hook got them, and they just kept coming back for more. Only to find that, well, even though we're kind of doing okay over here, our soul is pretty badly damaged. Don't really know how badly damaged it is until we compare it to something that we just heard. But there's this guy named Jesus, and he died for our sins, and he rose from the grave, and he promises that if we trust him, he will deliver us, not only from our sins, but from these forces that are keeping us captive, and he'll heal our souls in a way that we will go from 
maybe complaining or being angry or frustrated or filled with rage or wanting what other people have to a place where we have peace and joy and love. And so this stuff is starting to happen to people in Ephesus. And you're probably thinking right about now, what does this have to do with Dodge Challengers, Pastor? Well, just bear with me, because it sets the whole thing up. You see, the Apostle Paul knew that the good news would change that community. But let me ask you something. If you've ever owned a business, or knew anybody that owned a business, or been part of something that was a pretty substantial revenue stream, and somebody comes into your world and says, I can offer you something better. Matter of fact, it is so good, you don't need that anymore. And then all of a sudden, you're a metalsmith, everything dries up. You're a wood craftsman, everything starts to go away. You're the person that provides the food for the temple offerings, and all of a sudden, you're bringing all of this food in from the country. Nobody needs it. You think people are going to be a little upset? Just a little? Well, I was living in this million dollar mansion up on the hill, but now, van down by the river. You went from up there to down here, and I'm kind of bitter about it. And these people got so bitter that right after Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, you're still with me, he went to Ephesus, he told people about the good news, revenue started to drop, and Paul saw it coming. People were angry, business owners were upset, the whole, the whole economic engine of the community and the broader region was severely impacted by Jesus. Jesus was such a game changer that it was like going from brick and mortar to Amazon. It was that dramatic. If you were with Amazon, it's great, but if you're with brick and mortar, well, it's been painful. Even the government is subsidizing the online, but not the brick and mortar. And you're looking at things and you're saying from your unredeemed mind, Who's responsible for this? And then they see Paul. And they haul him in. And they're ready to murder him. I mean, they're, they're just, they're living. Well, they go through due process. Paul gets thrown in jail. And he's thinking, I saw the need. I gave them the gospel. And here I am. Threats on my life. I'm in jail. I'm staring out these bars. And I'm wondering, what happened? And that just kind of touches the surface of it. Nobody goes unpunished when you try to do something that actually impacts dysfunctionality or evil. It's going to cost you. And it cost Paul so much that about three or four years later, he's writing a book called 2 Corinthians. And instead of having all the swagger that he had in 1 Corinthians, and if I could just bore you for a minute, writing Galatians or Thessalonians, they're pretty, they're pretty like we're gonna we're gonna take on the world and we're gonna redeem everything that's lost. To being in a place where you're kind of seasoned. 
because it, it costs you along the way. And you're kind of beat up right now. And you're sort of feeling like that great vision that I had for this thing or that person or that job or that experience. It didn't turn out being what I thought it would be. And I'm not sure what to make of it. And the honest truth is, each of us, from time to time, has those moments, don't we? We get into something and we think that this is going to answer so many questions. When in reality, it just opens up a whole lot more. We get into something and we're like, once I lock this down, my life will be complete. Only to find that it poses its own set of complications. We see something that we think will be a game changer only to find that, yeah, it does change the game. But the old problems in different forms still remain. And as Paul is thinking about this church at Corinth that he dearly loves from the standpoint of a prison cell that he's not so keen on because it's really thwarting his ability to get in his own version of the Dodge Challenger and to go and offer the good news and experience the joy along the way, well, why wouldn't you be better? Why wouldn't you say, God, what on earth have you got me into? You said that we, we make plans, which we try to do according to your will, but you're the one directing the path. And I honestly didn't sign up for this. We didn't see this coming. I'd probably be bitter and have been bitter in some cases. And sometimes I wonder, God, just where are you? And the Apostle Paul wants to, wants to help us out here because he's writing this letter from a person that has been put through the shredder. And as he's writing it, he's thinking not about his own well, I went to Ephesus, was welcomed by the welcome wagon, went to the chamber, and they're like, it's all good. Met a few people, they showed some hospitality. It was going so well. And then I upset a few people, and then everybody turned against me. And people started beating me and spitting on me, and oh yeah. Oh yeah, the person who brought the good news in the first place, that happened to him. And Paul could really just draw out the drama. Have you ever just gone through that experience and you've told other people, this is what I went through, this is the pain that I've experienced, and almost like you're feeling a victim at the end of the whole thing. Paul never says, I'm a victim. Matter of fact, he doesn't even bother to tell us what happened. People have to piece it together. Because he does something that we don't do, and this is where I'm going with this, my friends. When, when you get hurt and something bad happens to you and you're assessing the damage, maybe it's your body, and you're saying, I'm hurt, I need to go to the hospital, or I need some medication, or I need something that's going to fix it, right? I need to do something to make it well and right again. In Paul's day, when somebody suffered some hardship or difficulty, 
The first question that came to most people's mind was, in, in terms of their version of God, what's the meaning behind this? Why did this happen to me? And for a believer, it's like, why did God allow this to happen to me? What is he trying to do here? Is he trying to show me something? Is he allowing me to go through this so that from it I can learn something? Have you ever suffered through something very difficult and you're like, man, I learned fast about that one. And maybe it was something you never even saw coming. Like I was changing a motorcycle tire since we're on a guy theme and maybe we need to have you know, a girl theme up here too just to be fair like you're suggesting. And I had a pry bar and I was prying the tire off and I was headed up by my head so I could get at it and I'm prying this thing off and then all of a sudden the pry, because I don't do this very often, the pry bar slipped and it hit me right in the jaw. And I'm like, hmm, I didn't feel good. And now I'm like, did anybody see me do that? <laughs> Nobody saw me. So I'm like, it's all good, but man, my face hurts really badly. Do you think, honestly, because I did change the tire, do you think I did it the same way again? <laughs> not on your life. Because it was so painful, I'm like, I'm not even touching this thing for a while. I'm just backing off. I learned. I learned the more painful it is, the quicker the learning curve. And it's not like God is saying, I want you to go through painful moments so you'll learn quickly. It's just that God is saying, when painful moments happen, step back and ask yourself, what does this mean? What is God doing? How is God going to use this? Now here's Paul. He's in the middle of his pain. And he says these words. He says this, for starters, from, coming from uh, 2 Corinthians. Let's just put the first scripture slide up there. He said, the load we had to carry was far too heavy for us. It got to the point where we gave up on life itself. Yes, deep inside ourselves, we received the death sentence. And if that's all you read, would you agree that he appears to be clinically very depressed? He's despairing. And he's thinking, I didn't sign up for this. I got the good news. So I heard the call. I got the good news. I went and I shared it. And now, I almost, I feel like I'd rather just be dead. It's gotten so weird and difficult. And so he's saying, deep inside my gut, this is painful. But then he goes on to say this. We're under all kinds of pressure, but we're not crushed completely. We're lost, but we're not at wit's end. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We're cast down, but not destroyed. So he encouragingly tells us, it's painful, but didn't kill us. So you're thinking, I'm here at church, I'm wanting to follow Jesus, and is this what the pastor's saying will happen to me? Probably not, but you will have your own painful moments. And when you do, God is saying, pay attention. I'm working through this trial that you didn't see coming, and now you're in the middle of it, and now you're having to process it. And Paul says, carries on his thought. Let's move on. Here he looks at this, and he basically says this. 
I'm carrying around the deadness of Jesus, that is, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in me. What on earth is he talking about? Other than to say that the death of Jesus and everything that the Son of God did on our behalf was a way of allowing the humiliation of death to begin to help you see where true life is sourced. If you're going through a dark valley, sometimes it's God's way of saying, there's some things you need to die to. Maybe you're being too prideful. Maybe you're being too greedy. Maybe this difficult time you're going through is a way of helping you to slow down and focus. Maybe you need to die to some priorities so that you can live to good priorities. And Paul is telling us all of this to say that the only reason that I'm still here is because of Jesus. Well, the babies are crying already, and I've upset them, and I hope I haven't upset you guys too much, so let's move on, quickly. Perfect for babies, right? The God of all comfort, who comforts us in our trouble, so that we can comfort people in every kind of trouble through the comfort with which God comforts us. What is the key word here? Comfort. You guys like to be comfortable? And so you're sitting in pews. Which means that you like something even more, better, hopefully. And that's the Word of God. Do you guys like to go home and sit on an easy chair sometimes after a long day and prop your feet up? Feels good to be comfortable. Do you think that's what he's talking about there? Well, when Paul writes this, it's the first thing that he says right out of the gate. Because he knows something about all of us. We carry pain. It could be because we're like my friend Alice, whose feet hurt today, because she was dancing in the streets at the car cruise. That's a good kind of pain. But it could be a bad kind of pain. Yeah, my knees are not doing what they used to do. Or it could be a soul pain that says, I have lost a loved one. And it's gut-wrenching. Or it could be the kind of pain that says, it's, it's, I, I, can't, I can't get this to work. All of us have something. And when Paul writes this, he's writing not as a person saying, you got a problem? You got a question? I got an answer. He's writing at the gut level saying, I know you guys are hurting. And I'm no stranger to hurting. But I want you to know that when you are hurting, there's meaning that God wants you to gather from that. Not just so you can feel better, but He's got an even bigger purpose in mind. Yesterday, after um, I had a conversation with, with someone, they were talking about persons that they know are experiencing grief. And this person I know had a loved one that was killed, and they said, I know what they're going through. Is there anything that we can collaborate on to create a means by which 
when people lose a loved one, they can have somebody come alongside and say, I know, I know what you're going through. There's nothing like it, is there? I mean, I can tell you as a pastor, this is what you're going through, and this is how you need to deal with it. But if I've never done it, it doesn't ring very significantly. But there's nothing like a person who is living in that moment where they just received some news that this may not go well. My friend Jerry Zimmerman, who was here in the first service, had that news given to him several years ago, and it was simply this. The reason why you're feeling like you're feeling, your thyroid, gone. And he's got a million questions going through his mind, and he's wondering where it's all going to go. He ends up getting radiation treatment, and he told me the whole saga of that and how scary it was. And then on the other side, he found that he was synthroid dependent. And then he discovered something. And this is where I think Paul wants us to go. Is that God's not going to waste that. And he said, you know, Leonard, there were people that I ran across who I never would have known who were at the beginning stages of dealing with thyroid cancer. And they were in the absolute state of fear and horror that I was in at that moment. And it was interesting when I came alongside them and said, this is what happened to me. This is how it went down. But now, my life is working again. And he said that when a person went through something that is of a similar nature and they came out on the other side okay, there was a change. There was a sea change in the air. They went from complete despair and hopelessness to a sense of, well, maybe there is hope. Maybe God does have a way. Now you take those words, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we can comfort other people. Paul uses that word comfort in a way that maybe we don't. And so I want to show you two quotes from N.T. Wright. And just bear with me for a second. And they say this, and they're in red. The whole idea of the word comfort is that one person is being with another, speaking words which change their mood and situation, giving them courage, new hope, new direction, new insight, which, they, which will alter the way they face the next moment, the next day, the rest of their life. And when you put all of that together in a bottle and you shake it up and you pour it out for someone who is in the middle of deep suffering, the best word we can come up with to describe the effect is probably And then he says this. This word that Paul uses over and over again does more than that. It meets people where they are at and brings them right onto the point where they are strong enough to see new hope, new possibilities, new ways forward. Do you want to know the difference? I know you're just begging me to ask this question. Do you want to know the difference between Clint Eastwood and the Apostle Paul? Perhaps we'll start with the similarities. Both of them had sort of a purpose in what they were doing. Both of them saw things that were not right and they wanted to right the wrongs. One used a gun and another used a pen. 
But the thing about most of the Clint Eastwood movies is oftentimes he's doing it alone. Kind of him versus the world. He's going to, well, he's going to call for a reckoning. And then he's going to make sure that it happens. The Apostle Paul, however, does it differently. Because he's saying to you and I, this is an us. Not an us versus them. And not a me versus you. This is a we together experience. Because people all around us are hurting all the time. And many of them are just saying, I want to fix it with medication and that's it, the end. And in some cases, that is certainly necessary. But in other cases, it is a way of trying to address a problem that can only be addressed by having other people in your world saying, yeah, I've been there. And I'm here to help you along. I'm here to mentor you along. I'm here to offer some guidance. I'm here to tell you my testimony so that you don't lose heart. I'm here to tell you that maybe I've been through that experience with another person and, well, this is how we work through it. And Paul is essentially saying, we can't do this alone. So he has two priorities that I want to end with. And it's what he says in verses uh, 8 and following. It says this. We can put that up there. Um, let's, let's move on to the next one. Uh, one. One more. Okay. Uh, one more. Let's, let's move on. One more. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scroll through some of this. There we go. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. You've heard this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. It's almost like Paul saying, I've been preaching this for a long time, but there's a part of me that says, I'm just going to do it in my own strength. But I've come to the realization that when I'm in jail in Ephesus and I'm wanting churches to grow, I can't make it happen. And maybe you have that sense that something is keeping you from doing what you need to do or want to do in a situation. For some of us, maybe you're thinking, yeah, I was talking to Amy Zimmerman about Stephen going over to India and how, you know, you just kind of let him go. You have no control over what happens. And you wonder and you hope. Hopefully they'll make it back okay. And the Apostle Paul is like, yeah, I get your need to control. I had that need to control. And I discovered this. God is in control. And if all of these things that are out of my control are happening, and here's what he has so far. He's got a church getting off the ground in Ephesus, which is all good, but he's got half the town mad at him wanting to kill him. Over in Corinth, he started a church, and it was all good for a while, but three years later, guess what? People, most of the people in that church turned their back on him. And he's grieving because he started this church. And now they all hate him. And he feels a sense of betrayal. And he feels heartbroken. And he's in this jail. And it's weighing on him. And you know what he's saying? I learned not to rely on myself. But on God. Now what do you have going on in your life right now? That is of a greater magnitude 
than all the things I just described about the Apostle Paul. I got to tell you, I feel like I've got a few things of magnitude in my own life going on. But it's nothing compared to that. That's, that's epic stuff. And if he, from an epic point of view, can tell myself and yourselves with the situation we have in front of us, you need to step back and you need to bring it before the Lord and you need to do so in a sincere way and in a trusting way and rely not so much on yourself to do what you are not able to do and rely upon God to do what he is more than able to do. When my kids go overseas, I say a prayer with them before they go. I ask God's angels to be with them in the process. And I pray for them every day and rely on God to do what I can't do. And doing stuff here at the church, messy sometimes, but there are so many little rewards almost every day that is so worth it. That you got to remind yourself, yeah, God, help me to rely on you to do what we need to do that I can't do. Paul said, I rely on the one who is able to raise the dead. I don't know anybody personally that can do that. But it appears to be one who is with us all the time who has and can. And Paul says that when you go through a difficult time, God has allowed you to go through that difficult time so that you can take that experience and begin to be used by God to help others in their difficult time. And that really is part of relying on God. Relying on God's people to allow God's grace to flow through their lives so that in that partnership, God does those things that Paul learns to rely on. How do I know that? Because of what he says next. He says this. He says um, in verses 10 and 11, He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us, and He will deliver us. On Him, we have set our hope that He will deliver again. On Him, we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You know what? If you believe that, Right now, say it with me. On Him, we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. It's kind of weak, but we got 13 weeks we'll work on it. But what else is in play here? Anything else? So I got a problem. Pastor, you said set your hope on God because Paul suffered. Makes sense. I can carry that out if you're with me. What else is in there that, that you want me to hear? Because I'm ready to go. Did I hear it? Prayer? Who's praying? Other people. Paul is saying this whole thing is a collaboration. It isn't just you and your personal relationship with God, but it is other people praying for other people so that what needs to happen can happen. Now, pastorally, I always have interesting things happen, and one was, Gal had a stroke last week, or a week and a half ago, and 
couldn't talk, couldn't move her arm. And I'm thinking, oh, not again. Her daughter texted me, and I said, we're praying. And other people started praying. And they knew people that were praying. And then I went to see her mom in the nursing home, who just walked back from her therapy just fine. I said, can you talk? And she talked up a storm. I said, you couldn't raise your arm, could you? Can you raise your arm? I'm like, how does this happen? And she said, prayer. How does anything happen in the church that is supposed to happen? I have to tell you something. I can't make it happen. And God wants to make it happen, but he will not do it by himself. He is always about not just bringing us together into a worship setting, but he's actually in the business of having us rub shoulders to a point where we do it to the degree that we start to understand each other well enough that when we suffer, well, there's somebody else who's got a story for us. I, I kind of consoled myself in Wes's mini bike accident because I've done something similar. And I have high regard for Wes, so I'm like, if Wes can wreck his mini bike like that, and I wreck mine at one point in a sort of a humiliating, embarrassing way, if I can just say that without going into details, I don't feel so alone. I feel like, Wes, we kind of got a club thing going on, don't we? You and I, tearing it up on mini bikes, tearing ourselves up on mini bikes, doing things we should know better as adults on mini bikes. Something about that moment that just says, I went from being, I'm not going to do that anymore, to, hey, let's go try it again. Isn't that weird? And God is saying to you, when I've allowed my key servant to go through this, it's probably not going to be anything like that that you go through, but you will go through things. And when you go through things, Instead of despairing like the Apostle Paul could have done very easily because everything is just blown up in his face, he said, I've learned. I've learned not to self-destruct. I've learned not to come apart. I've learned not to throw in the towel. I've learned to persevere. Because over here, God's working. And over here, people are praying. And I've discovered... No matter what, that's how it works. I don't know what you have going on in your life, but I'd like you to know if there's anything that we can pray for, we do and want to pray for that. And some of you do write faithfully on your connect cards things to pray about, which we love to pray about. But others of you say, I don't know if I can trust God. I trusted him here and he was good. I trusted him here and he was good. I trusted him here and he was good. But I've never been here before, and I'm not sure that he can do it. Well, if he can raise the dead, he can do it. The end of the sermon is this. I want you to begin to grow in your understanding that everything you go through in this life, God doesn't want to waste. But he actually wants to use so that he can use you to come alongside others so that they can discover that in the middle of their pain, there's a deep joy because Jesus is right in the center of it all. If he's not in the center of it all, 
Paul said in a verse I didn't read, why would I go to Ephesus and take on wild animals? Who in their right mind does that? Except for somebody who says there's a hope that's driving me beyond them into something greater. I hope I can call you into something greater. And I hope that as we, because this was a whole framing sermon for everything else. I hope as we go from stop to stop, God can speak to you and he can help you like this book has helped me so much. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you for the minds and the hearts and the ears that have been here to attend. I pray that I haven't wasted any of their time, Lord. I want to be respectful. But I pray that if there's anything that you've wanted to say to us, that we would be receptive. Just bless this series. Help us, Lord, to see you in it. And to, along the way, discover a deep joy that maybe we don't have because we have the courage to say, count me in.